Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 12, Laboratory of Empire. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last week, we covered the first English forays into the New World, the repeated attempts to settle in North and South America, the deaths from violence and disease which followed such attempts, and the final, bloody success of Virginia. This success was down to the military presence that had arrived with Lord Delaware, whose forces fought the local Powhatan Indians for several years, and the colony finding a justification for its existence, tobacco. After a dozen attempts, and hundreds if not thousands of deaths, the English had finally established a permanent presence in the Americas, paid for by a viable cash crop, and enforced by professional troops. It would be the first of many. While Virginia was suffering through its early first years, Another attempt at colonisation was taking place, almost simultaneously, on the other side of the Atlantic. In the aftermath of the Nine Years' War, and the concessions demanded from the O'Neill and his allies, large tracts of Irish land had been divided up. Some was granted to the former vassals of the rebellious Irish lords, while others was escheated, revoked, and held by the crown. With the sudden departure in September 1607 of the O'Neill, now simply Earl of Tyrone, and O'Donnell, Earl of Tyrconnell, their remaining territories were seized by the government in Dublin. What followed was the largest plantation of Ireland to date, as virtually the entire northern third of the island of Ireland was targeted for colonisation. The Plantation of Ulster, as it is sometimes known, began much earlier than the flight of the earls. As early as 1606, Scottish lords had begun to take an interest in Ulster, as James's accession had opened up an entirely new western frontier that had previously been wholly closed to Scots. Two in particular come to the fore. Sir Hugh Montgomery, 
and Sir James Hamilton. Montgomery had earned his piece of the pie by instigating a jailbreak for Con O'Neill and arranging for a royal pardon. In return for this, O'Neill's wife promised half of her husband's lands to the Scottish lord. Montgomery had done so, but as the deal was coming due, Hamilton and other courtiers interfered. Hamilton had been a valuable servant of James prior to his succession, and was well known in London and Dublin as both a representative of the Scottish king and a notable in his own right. He had been made a fellow of the newly established Trinity College Dublin upon its creation in 1592, and had offered the Queen the services of Scottish mercenaries against the O'Neill, and had been one of those who had arranged James's inheritance from Elizabeth. With James's accession and the end of the Nine Years' War, Hamilton profited handsomely with extensive lands in Ireland, but particularly in Ulster. The lands offered by the O'Neills were, so the argument went, simply too large to be split simply into halves. In his official grant, Montgomery was forced to share these new territories with both the previous owner, Con O'Neill, as well as with Hamilton, who was granted the lordship of Upper Clandyboy and the Great Ards in County Down in November 1605. Both Montgomery and Hamilton expanded their official grant through, as Professor Thomas Bartlett puts it, the swindling of Irish landowners who were either still imprisoned after the war, or otherwise in financial trouble and in need for some quick cash. As we covered in a previous episode, many Irish nobles found themselves in this situation, in need of ready funds as their traditional networks of patronage and obligations were being stripped from them by the victorious Dublin government. Montgomery and Hamilton were not the only English and Scots willing to step in, but they were the most successful. Through these purchases, and the confiscation of recently dissolved monasteries in Ulster, large parts of County Down, as well as County Antrim, came under their control. The two Scottish magnates had plans for their new land. They arranged the migration of hundreds of Scots to settle in the area, sourced from the Scottish lowlands, and so suitably civilised and Presbyterian. In May 1606, the first group arrived, attracted by the promise of low rents. Possibly 7,000 Scots would arrive in County Down and County Antrim by 1630. Of course, much as their predecessors in Ireland had found, and their compatriots in Virginia would soon find, this colonisation business was not easy. For starters, the previous occupiers of the land were, awkwardly, still there. The earls might have flown, and the crown might have claimed the land was now vacant, but that was not the case on the ground. Now, eagle-eared listeners may remember that I mentioned a few episodes ago that the Irish of Ulster and the Gales of Scotland had strong links, both in terms of culture, but also in trade and military service. These new arrivals were predominantly not Gales, and deliberately so. James had had his own difficulties with the Gales of the Highlands and the Islands, while solely King of Scots. Severing the connection between traditionally unruly populations was of great importance to him. In contrast to the later state-backed plantations, these private colonies were dispersed in much larger parcels, creating huge estates owned by single families instead of smaller freeholds. 
Large portions of these private purchases were surrendered to the Lord Deputy of Ireland, Arthur Chichester, with compensation, out of concern that Scots lords would otherwise rule significant territories just to the north of Dublin. Because yes, as with almost everything else we've covered so far, hostility and distrust between the English and the Scots would play a role in the plantation of Ireland, because of course it would. As we covered in our first episode, as well as previous episodes on Ireland, the civilising mission of elites in London, Edinburgh and Dublin had become increasingly popular over the previous century. The secretary to Mountjoy, while he was Lord Deputy, Finnis, or Finns Morrison, wrote about his time in the country. In his Anatomy of Ireland, published after the plantations were underway in 1615, he described them as, quote, more barbarous and more brutish in their customs and demeanours than in any other part of the world that is known. The Solicitor General of Ireland, Sir John Davies, architect of the Commission for Defective Titles we discussed in a previous episode, depicted the Irish as being little better than cannibals, and in some cases actually hunting and eating one another. One official described Ulster much like the wilds of Virginia, quote, Heretofore, as unknown to the English here, as the most inland part of Virginia is yet unknown to our English colony there. Just in case you'd forgotten Chichester's opinion of the native Irish, he described them as, quote, barbarous, irreligious, and headstrong people, inured to crimes and spoils, as well as, quote, proud, obstinate, and disobedient. Ireland, and particularly Ulster, had been England's frontier for generations, and both the Nine Years' War and the sudden departure of seemingly treasonous nobility had made its suppression and civilization a high priority. The Lord Deputy, his Solicitor General, and courtiers and officials both in London and Dublin were all in favour of drastic action. Montgomery and Hamilton had done good work in collecting and distributing land to more civilised people, even if they were Scots, but they were only private individuals. Private individuals with the king's ear, but individuals nevertheless. With the flight of the earls in 1607 and their subsequent attainder, their lands fell into the control of the crown. The question of what to do with them reared its head, much like with the plantation of Munster in the 1580s. Much of this went to the former vassals of the earls, while other parcels of land were divvied out to men of the same cloth as Montgomery and Hamilton. But two-fifths of the land would end up assigned to English and Scottish settlers, as the crown took an active interest. Following the flight in 1607, the following year, Sir Cahir O'Doherty raised his own rebellion over his ill-treatment. O'Doherty had supported the English during the war with the O'Neill, and resented the subsequent generous treatment of his former enemy, even as he had his rights restricted by Dublin after the English victory. O'Doherty sought recompense and further honours from court, specifically seeking a place in the retinue of the heir apparent, Prince Henry Frederick. His request was actually approved, but sadly the news of this didn't arrive in time to stop O'Doherty from rising up. After his death and defeat, in that order, his lands in Northwest Ireland were forfeited to the Crown. The lands forfeited by the Earls, O'Doherty, 
and through purchase and confiscation by middlemen like Montgomery and Hamilton, now encompassed vast tracts of Ulster. According to Professor Olmeyer of Trinity College Dublin, these confiscated territories covered most of the modern counties of Armagh, Tyrone, Fermanagh, Londonderry, Cavan, and Donegal. As always, if I pronounced any of those wrong, I'm very sorry. Combined with the counties of Antrim and Down, privately planted by the Scottish magnates, this is a huge amount of territory. So what was the crown going to do with it? By the time the plantation began in 1609, James had some experience in plantation. He had overseen brief forays into the New World, including the burgeoning Virginia plantation, as well as overseeing an attempted plantation of Harris and Lewis, an island in the Outer Hebrides. Further, the English crown had made its own attempt on Ireland, most recently with Munster, and many of the officials and administrators who had been involved remained at the court of James or at Dublin. Learning from this experience, in 1610, the Ulster land was further divided into parcels of one to two thousand acres and distributed to a hundred Scots and English undertakers and fifty servitors. Other land was set aside for the support of institutions that were expected to aid in civilising the Irish, such as churches and schools, and particularly Trinity College Dublin, which received an endowment of the seized land. Last, and honestly, in the eyes of London, possibly least, 300 Irishmen were designated as suitably deserving, and were likewise granted their own parcels of Ulster land. Professor Raymond Gillespie of NUI Maynooth has written a wonderfully detailed chapter on Ulster's economy in Ulster since 1600, and it's from here that I get these figures. In terms of how much land was being distributed, around 40% of the forfeited land was split between Scottish and English undertakers, with just under 15% going to the Irish, and slightly less going to the servitor veterans of the Nine Years' War. A tenth of the escheated land, mostly in County Colrain, was awarded to London merchant companies, centred on the town of Derry, and town and county were renamed as Londonderry in 1613. Roughly a fifth of the land was then dispersed amongst the civilising institutions, such as churches and schools. The centrally planned division would, it was hoped, create prosperous, homogenous, and model societies, instead of the large estates that dominated counties Antrim and Down. To James, the successful plantation of Ulster was beneficial for multiple reasons. Firstly, it would lead to peace in the most restless region of his most restless kingdom. The ideal British colonist was Protestant and suitably civilised, and they would found model societies in the untamed wilderness. Secondly, the modernising of Ulster's economy with the spread of British farming techniques, trade behaviour, and the establishment of towns and harbours would bring income into the royal treasury. Thirdly, although this was less an articulated concern of James, but the Ulster plantation, and Ireland more generally was, to borrow a phrase from Professor Olmeyer, a laboratory of empire. The rhetoric used by writers to describe the natives in Ireland and America was identical, as was the view of the land of being 
untamed, ripe for settlement, and England's rightful claim. Experiences, not just in Ireland, but in the other border regions of the British Isles, combined with similar experiences in the New World to create a synthesis of imperialist thought. Fourthly, the British nature of the plantation. James insisted on the settlement of Ulster being a joint project shared by both his English and Scots subjects. As Professor Elliot puts it, quote, The plantation in Ireland offered a rare opportunity for that blending of Scots and English on which James had set his heart, end quote. His attempts to unify the two kingdoms politically had been scuppered by vested interests on both sides of the border, so instead he was to try unifying them culturally through the use of Ireland. With luck, the two peoples would find more in common with one another in the face of the Irish other, and their cooperation would be an example to James's British subjects. But just like every other attempt of James to bring his first two kingdoms closer together, it didn't work. I'm starting to feel a little bit sorry for him. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Scots and English settled in Ulster all right, but they rarely settled together. Instead, they kept to their countrymen. Further threatening the project was the English-dominated nature of the plantation, which was in many ways unavoidable, despite the Scots arriving in greater numbers. The king ruled from London. Ulster had been conquered by the English. And the plantations they were subject to English officials in Dublin. Not only that, but Scots law and the Presbyterian Kirk were subject to English law and the Church of Ireland. While Scots were elevated to positions of authority in the Church of Ireland, they were still outnumbered by English colleagues who resented their sudden appearance. Adding to this unequal situation was the English mindset surrounding its neighbouring kingdoms, and Ireland's relationship with England was exactly what the English expected from Scotland. Ireland was a sister kingdom, united to England through right of conquest and wholly subservient to the English crown. Elizabeth had prevented mass Scottish migration during her reign, but now her successor, a Scottish king, was allowing thousands of foreigners to settle and profit from the fruit of English blood and treasure. The English attitude to the Scots is best described as condescending. Many English undertakers followed their king's decree and took on Scottish tenants only when English, and sometimes even Irish, alternatives were not available. Plantation administrators would prioritise the best land, either in terms of fertility or defensiveness, for English settlers, and grant to Scots the rest, using the Scots, quote, as a wall betwixt them and the Irish, end quote. To counter their political subordination, the Scottish settlements sought to solidify themselves through attracting further Scottish settlers, employing Scottish servants, holding Scottish Presbyterian church services, 
and associating as much as possible with only Scots. Professor Canny puts it best, although it is quite a long quote, I think it is worth hearing. Quote, The colony within a colony that Scots strove to fashion in Ulster during the course of the 17th century was never an exact replica of what they had left behind in Scotland. Rather, it was a hybrid society of Scots, Irish, and English, with a balance decidedly in favour of the Scots. By thus creating their own enclaves, however, the Scots in Ulster succeeded in maintaining a distance from the English, who were both commercially and politically dominant within the wider planter community, and they sometimes took advantage of the resulting freedom to enter into business transactions with native proprietors rather than with well-connected English settlers. End quote. The undertakers themselves were not of the quality hoped for. It had been expected that men of means, with the capital to invest, would jump at the opportunity to settle in Ulster. They would form a social elite to help govern and civilise the province, building it into a prosperous and peaceful part of the kingdom. To this end, James had bestowed generous grants of land onto his courtiers, with the expectation that these rich and powerful men would invest their own money and energy into the project. Instead, most of them just sold these grants off for a quick profit. Mostly, those who took the chance and travelled to Ulster were those who had once had fortune, but had since lost it and hoped that plantation would be the route back to prosperity, or those who had never been wealthy and hoped the plantation would be their chance to profit for the first time. These two groups had one thing in common. They had little to no money to invest in Ulster. As Chichester complained in 1610, quote, Those from England are, for the most part, plain country gentlemen. If they have any money, they keep it close, for hitherto they have dispersed but little. The Scottish come with greater part and better accompanied, but it may be with less money in their purses, end quote. Money was, of course, a dominating concern for any colony, and from the opening stages the City of London was heavily involved, and not necessarily by choice. A cartel of twelve companies formed the Irish Society, and under orders from the King began the settlement of the future County Londonderry. They were expected to meet all of the financial obligations that private undertakers were often able to shirk, leading to two fortified trading ports being established, fortified villages and towns, the settlement and supply of colonists, and the building of manor houses throughout the county. Failure to meet these forced obligations would incur substantial fines. All of this meant that Londonderry was, according to Canny, the single most expensive colonial expense for the City of London in this era. So how successful was all this effort? Precise numbers are, of course, impossible to know, and are largely based on the numbers of undertakers, tenants and servitors, only the men who were on record as receiving, buying or leasing land, and so the additional numbers of wives, children and servants must be taken into account. Naturally, historians differ. Gillespie and Professor Donald McRail of the University of Roehampton estimate that by 1630, the male settler population in Ulster was about 15,000, and massively outnumbered by the local Irish. 
Sir John suggests that by 1640, roughly 30,000 Scots had emigrated to the plantations, while Thomas Bartlett offers the figure of 24,000 British by the early 1630s, that is, combined English, Welsh and Scots settlers, with a substantial number of Scots, almost a third of that number, being centralised in County Antrim and Down, with another third centred in Londonderry. Professor Allmayer states that the Antrim plantation, which, again, along with County Down, was a private plantation, had over 300 British Protestant families. She states that upwards of 100,000 people are thought to have settled in Ireland as a whole, with 30,000 Scots mainly in Ulster, and 70,000 English and Welsh across the island. The colonists were concentrated firstly in the Far East, and then in the North, with scattered fortified towns throughout the rest of the province, but only in Armagh did settlers outnumber native Irish. None of these numbers are mutually exclusive, but they're varied enough to illustrate quite how difficult it is to measure the success of this plantation project. In Donegal and Londonderry, the ratio of Irish to settler was as high as 3 to 1, while in Tyrone, the numbers were roughly one and a half Irishmen for every British, although I wonder what half an Irishman looks like. The numbers were much lower than James would have hoped, which we can perhaps see most clearly by looking at the religious demographic. The vast majority of settlers were Protestant, either Anglican or Presbyterian, but by 1630, only 15 to 17% of the entire population of the province of Ulster was Protestant. Ireland, and not just Ulster, remained a popular destination for British settlement throughout the first half of the 17th century, despite its competition with the other English colonial venture, Virginia. The comparison between Virginia and Ulster is an interesting one. They began within years of one another, and many of the same people were involved in the decision-making, both on the ground and in government. As we've seen from the numbers, the Ulster Plantation was incredibly successful at attracting Scottish settlers. The insistence of the king that half of all land go to Scots certainly helped, but the burgeoning English Atlantic Empire remained closed to en masse Scottish migration until the later decades of the 17th century. The Ulster Plantation was closer and safer, and as the project progressed, was increasingly welcoming for further Scottish settlement. Scottish investment was, therefore, locked into Ireland, and so Ulster attracted most of the capital and migrants that would have made a distinctly Scottish colony in the New World, although there will be attempts, as we will see in the future. Any potential Irish investors were also more likely to look closer to home. With Jacobean forfeitures throwing open the door for land purchases, it was safer both financially and physically to stay on this side of the Atlantic, Naturally, these conditions would change as the century wore on, but in these early years, Ulster was the magnet for huge amounts of people and treasure. For the English, Ulster was less overpowering. Many merchants and traders had invested wholly in Ireland, yes, but England was much more prosperous than the other kingdoms, and so there was an array of lesser traders willing and eager to contribute in transatlantic ventures. Still, English settlement in the New World was limited compared to Ulster. 
Only a few thousand settlers would be in New England and Virginia by the time of the Wars of the Free Kingdoms, whereas tens of thousands had migrated to the Emerald Isle. As we've already touched on, the rhetoric surrounding both Ireland and the Americas, in descriptions of the land, the people, and their customs, was always similar, and often directly pointed out by the authors. Similarly, both Irish and American plantations were described as successors to the Roman coloniae, which had been farms and estates planted in conquered lands and settled by Roman citizens, often veterans of the Roman army. Sir John suggests that the term colonist only surpassed the term planter to describe English settlers in the 18th century, so ingrained was this mindset in the English official mind. The Irish plantations, from Mary to James, were laboratories of empire, where strategies of conquest and colonisation could be tested. Ulster was not the last British colonisation of Ireland, as many smaller parcels of land were forfeited to the crown by Irish landowners under James and Charles, and previously failed plantations, like in Leash and Munster, were revived over the first half of the 17th century, although it should be said they would never reach the size or the success of the Ulster plantations. Apologies for the delay in this episode, I was down with a cold last week and my productivity was shot. Next week we return to the narrative as James once again wrangles with his parliament as a possible solution to his money troubles is proposed. I also plan to look at the royal family, Queen Anna and the princes, as well as some of James's early favourites and most powerful courtiers. Make sure to listen to Human Circus wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. My favourite review from this week is actually two reviews, because I couldn't decide between the two. So the first is by The Flying Dog from the US, I don't believe that's your real name, saying, The standard of excellence continues informative and succinct. Always looking forward to new episodes. Love the music too. Thanks for a great product. Thank you, Flying Dog, for taking the time out of your travels. Um, I point out the music is Serenade for Strings by Edward Elgar. It's a fantastic piece, and it took me a long time to find a recording that was good enough quality and also available for me to use. Uh, so I'm glad that I'm glad that pre- people are appreciating that, because I, I love the piece so much. Um, And the other one from this week is from Cassandra Davis. Mr. Hume, thank you, produces a well-researched history podcast. Presented in mellifluous tones, the subject matter is easily followed by trained historians and teenage students. Thank you, Cassandra. I will be honest, I did have to look up what mellifluous means, and according to Google, it says a pleasingly smooth and musical to hear, which... I've never felt particularly musical, but maybe I should audition for X Factor. That could be quite fun. Thank you again to Cassandra and the Flying Dog, and uh, to everyone else who reviewed this week. I read them all. It's always amazing to hear. Thank you to my House of Lords, the Royal Headsman, executed today. Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Lady Michelle. The Most Honourable, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer. The Right Honourable, Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner. The Right Honourable, Countess of Shrewsbury. Elaine Dickens, the Right Honourable Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, and the Right Honourable Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan. The poll for the special episode has closed, so thank you to everyone who voted. Thank you to my House of Lords for being involved, 
And remember, if you want to join that distinguished body, go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Thank you again to Devon from Human Circus for opening this episode, and to you for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward prohibited by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.